You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. On 8 May 1701, ten alleged pirates were led from their cells in Newgate Prison to a holding area in the Old Bailey. They were unable to see inside the courtroom, but they could hear the crowd. And there was a crowd. The courtrooms in the Old Bailey all had tiered balcony seating, very much like a stadium, on two opposing sides of the courtroom. That's where all the aggrieved parties, like the owner of the Quida merchant, would be seated. But, you know, they'd be in the back. The best seats were reserved for powerful lords and members of parliament that were there to observe the proceedings. And the balconies were actually kind of cool. When you would leave your seat and walk up the stairs, just like a stadium, you'd walk through a door into a buffet-style dining room. And the foods that they had on offer were nice. We might look at it today as kind of a fancy charcuterie board. There would be a variety of breads and cheeses and meats. There would be thin-sliced roasted beef, ham, pheasant maybe. And then there would have been olives, a variety of different pickled vegetables, and even some fruit. Now, raw fruit was a bit taboo in England in 1700. There was this belief, especially among the lower classes who rarely had access to fruit, that raw fruit was dangerous. And, you know, since they could go bad so easily and were hard to find in the wild, maybe it would be dangerous any fruit they got their hands on. But there were a number of ways to preserve fruit, prepared so that it would no longer be dangerous. 
Of course, you've got your jams and your chutneys that would have been eaten on scones. But then you've got this option of something that I just love. They would take fresh fruit and bottle it in kind of a thick, very sweet honey wine. They'd be preserved in a very slightly alcoholic mead, just enough to make sure it wouldn't spoil. You'd take that and you'd dish it up. And if you were so inclined, you could spoon on some clotted cream. Now, I didn't know what clotted cream was exactly when I started looking into this. According to thespruceeats.com, it has the consistency of a softened cream cheese and tastes very much like a quality unsalted butter. Beyond that, there would have been the beverages, coffee, tea, and a wide variety of wine. So why am I bringing all this up? Well, I was kind of hungry when I wrote it, but more to the point, the judges and the prosecutors in the trial that was about to unfold would all have been pretty full and just a little bit drunk all the time. The accused, on the other hand, were not permitted to eat or drink anything while they were standing trial, so they were hungry all the time. And what about the jury? The jury was not necessarily permitted to access the cornucopia of foods that were available above the gallery, and they would have wanted to sample it. These foods, especially the fruit, were way beyond the kind of food that they ever had access to. They would have been smelling roasted beef seasoned with nutmeg and pepper all day long. Their mouths would literally have been watering. But here's the thing. Juries in England in 1700 were usually only allowed to access the dining room and all of that delicious food when they produced a verdict that the Crown would find favorable. You know, that's not the worst thing that we're going to see in the episodes to come, but I want us all to remember that in everything that is about to happen, the game is rigged. This is episode 284. The Arraignment, Trial, and Condemnation of Captain William Kidd, Part 1. That's most of the title of the pamphlet that was published immediately following the conclusion of the trial of William Kidd. It's a complete recording of all the proceedings, basically the court transcript, and our primary source moving forward. When the ten prisoners were finally led into the courtroom, the first thing they would have seen would have been a table full of court recorders, basically stenographers. There were five men at the table, all of them in lush red robes and powdered wigs. Now, they would have been writing with quills and dipping those in ink, and that's a slow process, sometimes messy. When you have to dip your quill again, you might miss something important. So four of those men were writing at all times to make sure that they could compare notes and get everything included in the final transcript. But in the middle of these four men, in a raised seat, was the chief recorder, Sir Salathiel Lovell. His job was not to record a court transcript, but instead to take notes about what was going on. More like some of those pictures you'll see from closed trials, he took notes about the pirates, and the lawyers, the prosecution, the judges. He gets all their mannerisms, their characteristics, that kind of thing. That's how we know what Captain Kidd is doing physically through much of this trial. Now, if we orient ourselves facing the judge's stand at the end of the room, 
The stenographers, the court recorders, would have been on the left side. On the right side of the room, you find 17 grand jurists on a raised platform. And then at the front, the judges stand. However, that at the moment was empty. These were preliminary proceedings, the arraignment. The only officers of the court at these proceedings were the chief recorder and the clerk of arraigns. The lawyers for the prosecution and the defense were also present, but they weren't allowed at this point to interact in any way. They were just there to observe. The ten prisoners were led into the dock. That was a sunken area in the center of the courtroom surrounded by stout wooden boards. The prisoners would then be chained to these boards, and they'd have to stand up in the dock all day long. The floor of the dock in which the prisoners were chained, was lined with fresh, fragrant herbs. You've got sage and lavender, rosemary, thyme, that kind of thing. It would have smelled great before the prisoners arrived. The purpose of that bed of fresh herbs was to stifle or to cover up the smell of the prisoners. These ten men, indeed any prisoner who had spent any time in Newgate, they smelled bad. They didn't really get to bathe in prison. They didn't get toilet paper. They couldn't brush their teeth. They were covered in open, oozing sores as well as lice and fleas. So, in addition to the bed of herbs, the courtroom was filled with oil and incense burners all around, all to combat the smell. The jurors and the prosecutors who sat closest to the prisoners, well, they were all given flowers that they would hold up to their mouths whenever they felt the urge to vomit. But sometimes they vomited anyway. We could hope for the sake of the prisoners that they had gone nose-blind at this point. All ten of them were crowded into this tiny space. Now, the ten people in the dock included Captain William Kidd, of course, as well as Hugh Parrott, the gunner, on board the adventure galley, Abel Owens, the cook, and Gabriel Loff, the foretopman. And there were also three cabin boys from the adventure galley, William Jenkins, Robert Lamley, and Richard Barleycorn, who was Kidd's personal cabin boy. The other three men had never sailed with William Kidd. Instead, they had sailed with Robert Culliford, but that really hadn't been sorted out yet. Everyone thought that they were kids' men at this point, so we're not going to share their names because they're not going to be important until later on. For now, the first order of business was to read the charges to the grand jury. This was the first time that Kidd had heard, specifically, what crimes he was to be charged with. Five counts of piracy on the high seas. But, of course, it wasn't just Captain Kidd. All ten men were charged with these same five counts of piracy. Once the charges had been read, the seventeen grand jurors retired to deliberate the charges. This was an important part of this kind of trial. The purpose of the grand jury, these seventeen men, was to discuss the charges and decide whether or not they were legitimate. This was the procedure for trials of high treason, but piracy in the legal system at the time was kind of a subset of high treason. The grand jury was not away for long. 
they returned and affirmed the charges, at which point they were dismissed and allowed to go up into the dining room where they could eat their fill, drink their fill, and were handed a small purse of coins for a good day's work. With the charges affirmed, William Kidd was called to the bar. In this courtroom in the Old Bailey, that was a platform behind the prisoner's dock. The clerk of arraigns ordered him to raise his hand, but William Kidd declined to do so. Instead of allowing the proceedings to continue, William Kidd said, May it please your lordships, I desire you to permit me to have counsel. He is asking here to speak with his lawyers, and they were there. Dr. Oldish and Mr. Lemon were sitting to the side quietly, waiting to see what would happen. But they were denied him. The next hour or so was filled with aggressive, circuitous, confusing contradictions. Now, I've never read Franz Kafka's The Trial, but I feel pretty confident in saying that these preliminary proceedings were Kafkaesque. I can't just read the transcript, it's pretty long, but the arguments go like this. William Kidd says he wants to confer with his counsel. The court officials tell him, but you don't have counsel until you enter a plea. But I need to speak to my lawyers before I enter a plea. But you can't speak to your lawyers because you don't have lawyers because the trial hasn't started because you haven't entered a plea. Captain Kidd says that he isn't prepared to enter a plea because he hasn't been given access to his documents or the opportunity to speak to his lawyers. Now, those documents are very important. They're going to be a key part of the rest of the day. But all of this, everything that the court is doing, would be very illegal today. After about half an hour of this, one of Mr. Kidd's lawyers, well, one of the men who would be his lawyers, Mr. Lemon, spoke up. He said that the court should be required to produce the papers William Kidd requested. The court recorder said, no, you are not his lawyer because he doesn't have a lawyer, because the trial hasn't started, because he hasn't entered a plea. At this point, the gallery, the audience up in the rafters, well, they started to grow rambunctious. They're yelling and throwing down insults, and it's starting to get a little dangerous. The court recorder orders them to settle down, and they kind of did, but this argument just keeps on going. Eventually, though, Kidd makes his point clear and concise. He said, quote, I must insist upon my French papers. Pray, let me have them. My justification depends upon them. The court, growing tired of all this arguing, declared that if William Kidd did not enter a plea, judgment would be passed, with no defense being offered. In case it's not clear, that means he would be found guilty and killed. They asked him one last time, guilty or not guilty. But Captain Kidd still did not reply. At this point, he's almost certainly looking back on the proceedings he oversaw back in New York. Or, Richard Zacks points out, he may have been looking to the trial of Robert Leisler, that rebel governor of New York who also refused to enter a plea. The rebel governor who was beheaded on the same day that William and Sarah Kidd got married. Finally, after several tense moments, Kidd spoke up. Not guilty. 
Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. With his plea out of the way, the trial proper could commence. The court was ordered to stand, and five judges swept into the chamber. And again, there are a lot of names in this trial. Between the judges and the prosecutors, there are eleven men here very intent on seeing William Kidd condemned. It would be counterproductive at this point to just recite all of their names. But the Chief Justice, he is important. His name was Sir Edward Ward. Sir Edward Ward was a very powerful man. He was intelligent and well-educated. When he graduated, he worked as a prosecutor for several years and earned a reputation for getting confessions and convictions. In 1693, King William named him Attorney General for England and Wales. There, he continued an almost unbroken streak of getting his confessions and convictions. But after a couple of years in that post, he was promoted to Chief Baron of the Exchequer. This was, as far as I can tell, the highest position that a person could hold that actively practiced the law. You know, there were other legal positions that technically outranked him, but they were mostly ceremonial, usually given to dukes or members of the royal family. They weren't positions that were ever expected to actually sit the bench. But Sir Edward was in a position that gave him the authority to prosecute almost anyone in the realm. MPs or lords, board members of companies like the East India Company or the Bank of England or the Royal Africa Company. We're talking about rich, powerful, influential people, but when they were caught in an act of malfeasance, Sir Edward could prosecute them, and he did, with occasionally amazing effectiveness. It's worth noting, though, that the prosecutions he usually chose to pursue tended to be against the Tories, not his party, the Whigs. But now here in 1701, Sir Edward Ward was facing the most high profile, the biggest case of his entire career, that of William Kidd. 
When Chief Justice Ward entered the courtroom, he carried an object that would have terrified every accused pirate in the dock. It was an oar, about four feet long, made from silver. The silver oar is the symbol of the admiralty. It physically sat before the bench in every trial that fell under admiralty jurisdiction. Every time a pirate was tried, that silver oar sat in front of the judge. When that pirate was hanged, that judge carried the silver oar. Anyone who had ever seen a pirate hanged at execution dock saw the chief justice carrying that oar. It's entirely possible that some of the pirates had no idea what it was, but others certainly would have recognized it, especially those born in England and, undoubtedly, William Kidd. When Chief Justice Ward laid that oar down before the bench, it did not bode well for any of the pirates in the dock. Once again, the clerk of arraigns read out the charges for the benefit of the judges, they listed the five counts of piracy, but then the court dropped a bomb. Remember, the preliminary hearings had been to affirm the charges of piracy, a treason charge. But now they had a regular criminal charge to lay on Captain Kidd. The accusation reads in very truncated language, quote, William Kidd, not having the fear of God before his eyes, feloniously, voluntarily, and with malice aforethought, did make an assault upon one William Moore with a certain iron bucket bound with iron hoops, with which William Kidd did violently beat and strike William Moore upon the right part of the head. End quote. It takes a while to get around to it, but eventually this passage gets around to telling us that William Moore died, and it accuses Captain Kidd of murder. And when I say it takes a while to get around to it, understand that this accusation, this arraignment, takes up about a page and a half, and there is not one single period in that passage. Just to give you a, a flavor, a taste of what this document is like, I'm going to read a brief part of that passage. It says, quote, William Moore, from the said 30th day of October, in the ninth year aforesaid, until the one and 30th day of the said month of October, in the year aforesaid, upon the high seas aforesaid, in the ship aforesaid, and within the jurisdiction of the admiralty aforesaid, etc., 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 in this passage, this accusation of murder, the word aforesaid appears 27 times. That's the legalese of England in 1701. Still, though, the charge was a shock. Murder? He was being charged with murder? The clerk of arraigns asked William Kidd how he decided to plea, and once again... William Kidd took up the case for his documents. He begged for those French passports to justify his seizures of those ships. But he was clearly beginning to spiral. The charge of murder had upset any plans for his defense he may have had. Now, personally, to my mind, yes, Captain Kidd was absolutely guilty of murder. He did it. He killed that guy. But he's not anywhere near unique in that. 
All of the hundreds, perhaps even thousands of other ships' captains throughout the entire span of the British Empire, their Empire of the Sea, all of those uncounted captains that killed members of their crew, to my mind, are also guilty of murder. You know, that's not okay. However, in English law at the time, it was perfectly legal for a ship's captain to kill a crewman if he had a proper justification. One of those proper justifications is a crewman plotting or attempting a mutiny, which is exactly what William Moore was doing. Now, you know me, I'm fine with a little bit of mutiny, but as far as the law is concerned, Captain Kidd was perfectly within his legal rights when he killed William Moore. Which is why, when presented with this accusation, he pled not guilty. With that last plea out of the way, his lawyers were allowed to speak for him to join the proceedings, and they interceded on William Kidd's behalf. First things first, they requested that Edward Davis be present for this opening defense. Edward Davis was, of course, a passenger picked up on Madagascar after all of the alleged piracies took place. He wasn't involved in any of that. He was still suspicious, so he was locked up in Newgate, but he wasn't here on trial. Moreover, though, the reason that the lawyers wanted Edward Davis here in the courtroom is because he could testify to having seen those French passports in person. But he was still in jail. Justice Ward asked William Kidd why he didn't have those passes ready. You know, you're on trial, where are they? Kidd replied that the passes had been seized by Lord Bellamont. He told the court that Bellamont could, quote, make this all clear as day. End quote. But of course, by this point, Lord Bellamont was dead. So Justice Ward turns to the lawyers and asks them, where are the passports? The lawyers say that they don't know. Those passports were supposed to have been in the possession of the Admiralty, but they were nowhere to be found. No one seems to know what happened to them. Now, Lord Bellamont prior to departing England, had signed and sworn an affidavit saying that those passports had been handed off to the Admiralty, and now, poof, they're gone. And here, Justice Ward begins to admonish the lawyers for not properly preparing for the trial. You know, it's not like you didn't know this was coming. Where's the evidence? Why am I only hearing about this now? He asked the Solicitor General how much time the lawyers had been given to prepare, and the Solicitor General replied, a fortnight, two weeks. So, Justice Ward says, you know, why haven't you found him? You had two weeks, but the lawyers, in very polite, very proper language, basically tell him, you know, we've been trying, but your friends and co-workers and family members have been lying to us and hiding them this whole time. We can't get our hands on them because people don't want them to be found. And here, William Kidd loses his temper. When he hears this two weeks business, he says, no, I did not have any of the money I should have been given, or access to counsel, or access to any potential witnesses, he calls them friends, he had none of that until the night before he arrived here at the Old Bailey. 
like less than 12 hours ago is when he had his first access to any of those resources. Now, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know exactly how to put this in the proper language. I'm also not an academic, so I can't say this with the authority that a historian would be able to. Really, I'm just a guy that likes pirate stories, but to me, all of this looks a lot like f***ing bullshit. Justice Ward replied to Captain Kidd's outburst, saying, Well, why did you not signify so much to the king's officers? Which would be, let me check my notes, impossible. Captain Kidd had been held in solitary up until he was released to come to court. He didn't meet his lawyers until the night before the trial, when the king's officers were already in bed. Now I could think of some choice words to use for Chief Justice Ward, but instead, I'll let Richard Zacks tell it. He writes, quote, Either Baron Ward had a refined sense of humor, or he was an extremely cruel man. Perhaps both. End quote. Eventually, though, the court conceded to these needs. They would put off the trial for piracy until the following day. That should give the Admiralty time to find those French passports, and the lawyers time to properly prepare. It would also allow them to bring Edward Davis in for questioning. However, they still had most of a day left. And they could still try Captain Kidd for murder. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show, shared it online or in real life, and everybody who has given us a rating or review, you all help make this show possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend.
tonight